Hi, everybody. Welcome to Humane Voices. Uh, today, we're pulling uh, the curtain back on our own organization just a little bit and on nonprofits in general. It's a little bit of an inside scoop on something that doesn't usually get a whole lot of visibility in the nonprofit world, which is the philanthropic side of our work. Um, you know, at our organization specifically, a lot of, you know, our, our donors and supporters, they see all the amazing work. They see the animal rescue team out on, on its calls. They see, you know, the incredible legislative and corporate reform work that we do. But what can be sometimes invisible is the folks who are sort of keeping the lights on and helping all that work happen by raising the money to do that work. Um, you know, the expenses in, in running a major campaign for animals and, and doing a major rescue can be really significant and none of it could happen without our, without our supporters. And so we wanted to bring on, um, my friend and colleague, Kimberly Din today, our senior vice president for philanthropy at HSUS. Kimberly, I, we're so excited to have you here. Thanks so much for inviting me, Carrie. I'm hoping that I am an exciting person for you guys to listen to. (laughs) (laughs) How long have you been with the team at this point? I was trying to remember. I've been with the Humane Society. I think this fall will be 10 years. So it's been almost a decade that I've been with HSUS. Congratulations. Hooray. So tell tell us a little bit about like, I mean, has your role evolved? Like, what are you doing on a day-to-day basis? Yeah. Well, I oversee our philanthropy team. So I've got a team of about 35 people. And we are kind of divvied up by a few different activities. Um, I oversee our business development and corporate corporate relations team, and they work on things like trademark licensing or if a company wants to do a fundraiser with us. I oversee our major gift team. Um, they work with um, donors who are interested in giving $10,000 and up gifts. I, work, I oversee our planned giving team that works with folks on bequest giving. And then last but not least, I oversee our events team and our events team executes um, our annual gala and fundraising Mm. event, as well as our Humane Journeys travel program, which takes donors out into the field to get to kind of experience some of our work firsthand. That's fantastic. So I, I mean, I think that this is, this is so critical. It's like that, that sort of um, fundraising side just doesn't get a lot of sort of visibility, but it's, it's the, like the lifeblood of any nonprofit, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're the economic engine that propels all of our programmatic work forward. You know, if mm-hmm. we don't have effective fundraising, we, you know, we just won't have the resources to get work done. You know, HSUS is an incredibly effective organization. And, you know, part of that success is, you know, fueled by our fundraising, our ability to sort of deliver the resources that our program teams need to end the cruelest practices. Yeah. I mean, I imagine that almost any nonprofit sort of has this role. I I think one of the things I'd be really curious about is, so for for successful fundraisers, for you and the people on your team, like what are what are the things that you guys know how to do? Like how do you like how do you sort of create that bridge between the the sort of understanding of our work and the desire to sort of support it and and the sort of gift? Like what are the skill set that sort of goes into that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think a lot of it is the ability to, you know, to articulate really complex programmatic work. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I have somebody on my team who works to develop, you know, campaign proposals around our priority initiatives and really, you know, take a complex issue like ending dog meat farming in Mm -hmm. Asia 
you know, and distilling that down into here's our pathway and here's we're gonna how we're gonna do it, and here's the budget, and here's the resources that we need to do that. Yeah. And you know, finding people who connect with those issues and and want to support that work. We work a lot too with you know more institutional funders and foundations who are you know dedicated to funding specific kind of projects. So mm. we do a lot of sort of networking with those folks and you know keeping abreast of what you know what they're interested in and what the trends are out there in terms of funding opportunities and resources. Mm. And on you know for our corporate development work, you know we're really looking at ways to sort of make it easy for corporations to get involved with the HSUS and support our work. You know one of the things that we're we do is we work closely with Chewy on um, distributing, you know, donated goods and services all around the country to shelters. Um, I think it was $21 million last yeah, year in donated yeah. goods that, you know, my team helped manage and distribute and work with our program staff to get those out to shelters who could really use them. That's fantastic. So, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned shelters because one of the things I was really wanted to talk about a little bit is you know, I think we experienced this at the at the Humane Society more broadly, is that there are sort of these these issues that, that bring people into the organization. And then I think sometimes your team does a lot of work to sort of build that build that sort of under, uh, understanding and awareness of someone who comes into the organization sort of maybe interested in us because they love their dog to, you know, looking at the sort of broader expanse of animal protection issues as a whole. And I'm really curious about sort of how do you how do you sort of build that kind of entree interest into a lifetime commitment to the organization and animals. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, you know, most people, how they come to the Humane Society is usually through a companion animal issue. Mm-hmm. That's how I came to the Humane Society. Yeah, of course. I adopted a pit bull. I didn't know anything about pit bull. <laughs> I couldn't even pick a pit bull up out of a lineup if you <laughs> Showing me 10 of them and said, pick the pit bull. But um, <laughs> once I adopted, you know, this dog and I started to kind of learn about things like, you know, you know, breed specific, that didn't come out right, breed specific <laughs> legislation, you know, and um, also about just sort of, you know, the challenges with dog fighting and, and you know, and HSUS is one of the organizations that's really working to sort of shut that down and, you mm-hmm. know, going state by state to you know, to to tighten those penalties. And that sort of was my my personal opening up into this space of like, oh, wow, there's a lot more going on here than adopting out cats and rescuing animals, right? Yeah. And, and I think for most of the donors who are new to the organization, um, they tend to come in, you know, on disasters or really big media stories. I would say like the beagle rescue last year, yeah, you know, totally. those 3,000 beagles got so much attention and a lot of people, you know, were first time donors to HSUS. And then it's, you know, my job to be like, this is great that you guys are really excited about us, you know, rescuing these beagles. But did you know, this is, you know, the symptom of one of our bigger priority campaigns, which is to end animal testing. You yeah. know, that those beagles is, you know, as adorable and cute as they were, you know, they were being bred for, a, you know, for, a, you know, to be sold to laboratories for testing. And, you know, we're working at those, at those root causes. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, a big difference what I always tell people about, you know, the Humane Society of the United States and your like local shelter and rescue is, you know, we were formed in the 1950s because there was no organization to focus on those root causes of mm. suffering. You know, most shelters are in the day-to-day triage of animal suffering. You know, animals come in, they need care, they need support, they need vetting, we get them yep. adopted they and they move yep. on. Mm-hmm. But that's, you know, they don't have time then to have a team of loyal lawyers, you know, to be out there, you know, battling the good fight and, you know, blocking bad legislation. They don't have, you know, state directors who are out there looking at ways to push the needle in states 
states that are lagging behind on on animal issues. And so, you know, the HSUS fills a really special niche there. You know, Mm -hmm. we're still work really close in partnership with shelters all around the country. And we need them as partners. You know, when we do have a big rescue, we don't have brick and mortar shelters. We rely on our shelter rescue partners. Once those dogs are ready to go and ready to go out into their homes, you know, they're the ones who are going to do that work of the adoption. So, so I think that, you know, once people come in the door, they learn, they learn a little bit more about, about what we're doing. And I think, you know, Farm animals is another issue. I think that's increasingly a way that people are coming into the organization because people oh, are great. concerned yeah. about climate change. They're concerned mm-hmm. about their own health and well-being. And so, you know, the idea of thinking about farm animals as sort of sentient beings for a lot of people is new and how they approach that. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that that is, that's just so true. It's like you come in with this sort of understanding that your dog or cat is a unique individual and then sort of like the growing of, of your own sort of understanding that that applies to all other animals too. I think, you know, and, and sort of your team does such a great job of sort of bringing donors in through, through one door and then sort of showing them the whole sort of world that exists beyond that. I mean, I'm really curious, like, so when you're sort of talking to donors, like how do you sort of, um, gauge their interests and how they might grow? How do you sort of like pair them with particular events and particular things that you think they might want to support? Good question. Yeah. Usually, you know, when, when we're starting to work with a new donor, particularly, you know, somebody who's interested in making a major gift to the organization is sort of, you know, what, what, what's motivating them? You know, what are they, you know, what are they concerned about? What are they worried about? And then, kind of tailoring, here's a list of the things that we're working on that kind of align with your values, with where you're going. And so a lot of times somebody will say, you know, it it just, it really, you know, it really upsets me to see, you know, pigs in gestation cakes, for example, you know, I've seen something on TV about this, you know, what are you doing? And so we'll say, okay, here's different ways that we're working on this issue. And we're working on it globally, as well as domestically. Um, and that, you know, we're going state by state. We're also trying to push at the federal level. And so I think, you know, a lot of time donors will latch on to something like, oh, wow, I'm really interested in this thing that you're doing. You know, I love that. I love that you guys are working with the universities to drive down meat consumption. You know, that's mm. that's a phenomenal way I want to get yeah. involved with that. So so it's really a lot of conversation and back and forth about, you know, what sort of motivates them. I would say a lot of people, too, are just like, you know, I really want to make a large investment in this work. You know, I want to make a, a general gift to the organization, you know, apply it where you need it the most. And, oh, and so God bless those that's people. also really, really <laughs> yeah, appreciative. Yeah, yeah. Totally. yeah. <laughs> that's always that. Yeah. You know, my best case scenario is when somebody is just like, you know, take it and do what you need to get done. You know, we, mm-hmm. we have a very focused um, list of priority strategic initiatives that we're working on as an organization. And that's where, you know, we funnel the bulk of our organizational resources towards those. So I think that, you know, making sure donors are aware of those, you know, we were trying to have the most impact possible. Um, Mm -hmm. Every issue that is an animal issue is an important issue, but, you know, we are really trying to focus our weight and our strength and our expertise where we can move the needle for the most most amount of animals to eliminate the most amount of suffering in, in the quickest time possible. Yeah. I know your team um, manages a number of events for our organization, you know, like our annual gala, but I was really curious, like one of the things that I think is, is most exciting um, and, and, let's really let's donors connect with the work is this work you do with humane journeys. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about those and sort of like what they are and how they sort of let, let donors sort of get a feel for what we're actually doing. Yeah, absolutely. We started the humane journeys travel program about 
right before COVID, I would say oh, it was about gosh. four years ago. Yeah, I was trying to think that's the exact date. And, when um, nobody went anywhere, no one yeah, journeyed. Yeah, and, and nobody wants to go on a virtual trip anymore. We're all, right. we're all over that. But really, we we had this idea. We really wanted to have sort of fun, experiential learning um, mm-hmm. where people get to kind of see hands-on animals as well as some of our really deeply rooted work. And so this year in 2023, we have hu- um, three humane journeys coming up. Um, the first one is going to be in March. And um, we do have, I think, one or two spots left on that trip. Um, but we're going to be going out on the ice flows off of uh, the coast of Canada and seeing uh, the baby harp seals will be um, birthing at that time. Um, if you're not familiar with them, they're probably maybe the most cutest cutest thing you've ever seen on the planet. Um, we've done a lot of work over the last decade to really bring down the number of these um, seals that are usually clubbed mm-hmm. to death, you know, for for the fur trade through our fur campaign work. And um, it's really a once in a lifetime opportunity to get out there on the ice flows and get to see them up close and personal. Yeah, it's totally. It's a really exciting trip. Yeah. Kimberly, just act, before you move on to the other ones, I was really curious, I'm, you know, like how knowing a little bit about the sort of Canada seal hunt, like how do you, how do you manage issues like donor safety in a, in a situation where they're going out to see the seals? Because some of that can be, can be a little bit tricky, you know, when, when like the sealers are not happy to see act activists out there. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Because you're going out by helicopter, you can generally see where there is mm-hmm. sealing activity and not sealing activity. Ah, there um, you go. And so yeah. you can kind of know where to land safely for that. I will say that sealing activity because of the work of HSI in Canada in particular is really at an all time low. There is no international market right now for the pelts. Um, I think the only place in the world that will allow you to buy and sell a seal pelt is China at the Mm -hmm. moment. Um, So the the industry right now is kind of being propped up a little bit by the Canadian government, but I, I think it's like a fraction of what it was like a yeah. decade ago. Incredible and, work and has so been done on it. There's yeah. not, yeah. I mean, there is still some ceiling that goes on, but but the level of the massacre is 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 really been pushed pushed to the brink, and it's something that we think you know we'll see ending probably in our lifetime. Yeah. You know, climate change is you know from a safety perspective, the window in which you can get out on the ice these days is getting yep. narrower and narrower. You know, you. It's a whole new threat to the th- seals. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, which yeah. is now going to be the next fight to kind of protect yeah. these, you know these majestic animals and where are they going to go if they don't have the ice to to birth on and to be safe on. Yeah, that sounds like an incredible trip. So, so where else are you guys going this year? So our second humane journey this year is going to be in April to Black Beauty Ranch. Mm. Um, This is HSUS's sort of flagship sanctuary. And you probably know better than me, how many different species of animals do we have? Oh my gosh, I feel like it's, it's, it's at least 30 different species. And I know something like around 650 animals. Yeah, yeah. It's an incredible space. It's incredible. I mean, we have, and, and most of the animals at Black Beauty Ranch, they all come from cruelty. They're they're mm-hmm. all rescued animals. And we have everything from farm animals to um, exotic game stock to tigers. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, tiger breeding in the US is, you know, a little bit of a of a phenomenon. We just passed the big cat at the end yeah. of the year. So Hopefully the pipeline of tigers coming into the ranch will go down, but (laughs) at least once a year, you know, we get a call somewhere, someplace in the U.S. that there's, you know, a baby tiger or an adult tiger, you know, wandering Houston or something like that. And so 
Um, we also have a lot of small monkeys that come out of research facilities. Mm -hmm. um, that's one of the areas that we're seeing an increasing demand is, you know, to retire these animals out of animal testing. Um, we also have um, several roadside zoos that have shut down. Mm -hmm. So we have everything from kangaroos to sulcata tortoises. It's really, it's like a Noah's Ark of rescue animals. So it's a phenomenal trip. Um, the trip starts in Dallas and goes out and you get to spend a whole day at the ranch. Mm. Um, there is a painting with the pigs, which is always kind of fun, and some other enrichment activities. You get to help um, make puzzles and things for, for the primates that like to kind of dismantle stuff like that. And Oh, um, that's just, awesome. Yeah. That's great. So it's a super, it's a super special trip and it's really fun trip. Um, Black Beauty isn't some place that you can just go like mm -hmm. on your yeah. own. You know, it is a sanctuary. So it's really by invite only or special event only that you get to go, um, get to go and visit the ranch. Right, right. Because the priority at the sanctuary is to really make sure that these animals have a comfortable and, and safe life and they're not being pestered by people. So right. that, it's know, not the a interactions yeah. with them are really managed. Yeah. So when you're doing paint with the pigs, like, like, is that just you're painting around pigs? You're, no, like, the, pigs, the pigs and out? you paint a picture together. So <laughs> oh my God, <laughs> it's an enrichment activity for them. Um, and uh, it involves a lot of paint and paper and grapes and oh my god I love this I'm imagining yeah, Bob Ross here like yeah, actually, game, you know doing the work with him <laughs> um, ah. this is a pig painting that was Fantastic. done uh, at a trip last year <laughs> I see sort of shades of early Jackson Pollock here yeah I, mean, I, I know I'm not sure uh... what what direction we're supposed <laughs> to be going with this but... you need to ask the artist clearly <laughs> <laughs> so after BBR, what's the what's the last trip this year? Well, our last trip of the year is a really, really special trip. Um, and um, we are going to be going to South Africa, working mm. with the Society International South Africa team. And we're going to be going out to a private game reserve for a week um, and staying in um, sort of luxury tents out there. Mm. But the really cool thing is that you're going to get to go out with our wildlife biologists and they're going to be darting elephants for PZP. And PZP is a birth control drug. Mm -hmm. um, this particular wildlife preserve has too many elephants on it. Mm -hmm. And they're, you know, they're trying to avoid conflicts with neighboring farming communities and that by sort of lowering the birth rate in a really humane way as, as yeah. opposed to calling or trying to move the elephants from one place to another. Um, and so participants are going to get to be there while they're darting them and they are going to collar an elephant. So they're actually going to get to be there when an elephant is tranquilized. They're going to get to wow. see put the collar on. Yeah, it's going to be really, really special. Like this isn't the kind of thing you would get to see on a, on, you know, on a regular safari. Yeah. So we're, we're super excited about that. And, um, it's a week long trip. We're also going to visit in, um, in Johannesburg, um, a shelter and, mm. uh, a facility and access to care program that oh, that's um, we're great. funding down there as well. So you'll get to do a little bit of companion animal work in the city, mm -hmm. um, but then bulk of the time will be spent out on the the, the reserve. Mm, fantastic. Wow. So, I mean, that, that sounds like such an amazing trip and such an incredible exposure to our work and to animals that most people will never get to interact with. It's really fantastic. So 
one of the one of the elements of your work um, is around what's typically called planned giving. I'm really curious about you know so so what is the like what is it what does that actually mean like planned giving you know I mean it it seems like it's it's kind of an amorphous term and I'm I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about sort of how you sort of build those relationships to to sort of develop planned giving. Yeah, absolutely. I mean. Planned giving is probably for most people a bequest gift is the most important like charitable gift they're going to make ever in your life. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's the ultimate gift that you're going to give. And usually it is the most significant gift that anybody is going going to give. And so it's you know, it's a it's a very important relationship. Um, I have a team that works with donors um, who are interested in leaving a bequest to the, um, mm-hmm. to the Humane Society of the United States or to Humane Society International. And um you know, we, we meet with them, we work with them, you know, we keep them abreast and steward them on, you know, the areas that they're interested in. Um, but the really kind of cool thing about it is you don't have to be a billionaire to mm. leave a bequest or a planned gift. You know, the majority of the bequests that we get just come from regular donors, you mm. know, people who are giving $50 a year or $100 a year, but have just been really, really committed to the cause and the mission of the Humane Society. And so on average, you know, a bequest gift is about $30,000. It's a significant mm-hmm. amount of money. Yeah. Um, and um, it is our single largest source of unrestricted revenue for the mm. Humane Society of the United States. Um, and it's it's phenomenal. A lot of our bequest donors um, are our little ambassadors in many ways. Um, mm-hmm. Many of them do videos for us and promos and they act as our spokespeople and they're out talking to other people about it. And so it's really, really fun to partner with um, them who are really, really passionate about this work, about what they're going to do and how you know they want their legacy to be cemented. Yeah, I mean that must just take an enormous amount of sort of relationship building with with folks. I mean, you must really get to know these people and their passions and their whole lives. I mean, I know I've talked to some of your team now and then, and, you know, and it's very frequent when I'm talking to one of your your folks and they've just been, you know, visiting with one of your one of your donors on and sort of they they can tell tell me about their family and their pets and you know, like how do you guys go about sort of building that relationship? Yeah, you know, our plan giving team, you know, they work geographically. They're they're mm-hmm. they're, they're scattered around the United States and you know they work with a you know network of donors in, in their region. Um, and you know, most of them visit with them annually. We also host a lot of like webinars and try to connect them with their state directors if they're interested in getting involved at the state level. Um, it's a lot of, of um just a lot of communication back and forth about what people want to do. I mm-hmm. will say that um, you know, it's really it's bittersweet sometimes, you know, just this week, um, we got notification of a, of a bequest that was coming into the organization. It was a long-term donor that, that several people on my team knew and had worked mm-hmm. with over the years and had actually gone out and volunteered. They were from Texas at Black Beauty Ranch. And so mm-hmm. some of the ranch staff were like, oh, I knew them back in the day. Oh, wow. And yeah. And so sometimes it's a little hard, you know, you get to know people and, but, but then at the other time I'm like, you know, how cool is it that, you know, we all know who they are and we all know what they're, you know, committing their legacy to and that they're a part of that with us. Yeah, that's incredible. Wow. Oh, man, that must be just really emotional for you and your team sometimes after. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. And then sometimes there's real surprises. There's a very quiet donor who you worked with. They've never really said anything and, you know, about the size of their estate or anything. And, 
And then, you know, once they once they pass, you know, a short time later, you'll find out, oh, wow, they're leaving, you know, like a five million dollar gift. Yeah, you're, that's incredible. You're just floored, you know, the, the, the you know, with the gratitude that we have for people who are who are really, really, you know, cemented, cemented in, you know, supporting the work of the organization is pretty undeniable. Oh, my God. Yeah, that's 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 so amazing. I mean, that must be it. It seems so it, it's sad on one hand that you don't get to say thank you to those people. I mean, mm-hmm. but I mean, their their work is like, I mean, the way that it's empowering us to do what we're doing. I mean, in, in a way, it's sort of like a living thank you. It's, yeah. it's incredible. Yeah. 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 And a lot of times we'll, we will know their children or we'll know other people in their family and members, mm-hmm. you know, so so we usually do have a little bit of continuity with with folks. But, yeah. but it's definitely bittersweet. Yeah. So I know what we do here, but how does how does what we do here at the Humane Society Family of Organizations like is this sort of similar across multiple other nonprofits? I mean, I I assume that this sort of plan giving and a lot of the sort of strategies we do sort of play out at universities and other NGOs. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think we're doing anything that's that's particularly unique in the sector. Mm-hmm. Um, I think our Humane Journeys program is probably really unique. Um, I don't yeah. see, you know, I think a few other organizations like WWF, you know, or some of the wildlife organizations have programs like that. Um, I think what is really kind of cool about our work is, you know, it's global in nature. Mm-hmm. And so it's really, you know, if you care about farm animals anywhere in the world, you know, we're tackling that, whether it's Latin America, whether it's Asia, whether it's Africa, whether it's here in the United States, that, you know, we're not just solving problems here in the U.S. and and then letting, you know, things get pushed off to the border to other places that we're really kind of working around the globe to bring all that back together. Yeah. Do, do you find the same is true in terms of actual the, the support we generate? Like are our globe, are donors global as well? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And more increasingly more so. Uh, um, mm-hmm. I would say that we do raise a fair amount of money for our global work in the United States, but yeah. increasingly we're adding team in other parts of the world to focus on fundraising. Mm-hmm. Um, um, Europe and the UK, we now have fundraising teams there. We have fundraising staff in Korea and mm-hmm. Canada. And so, you know, it's, it's definitely building and growing. I think what's really interesting is that sort of how you talk to donors and how you attract people to the movement can vary culture to culture and Mm, language mm -hmm. to language. And so that's why it's really important to have local people, local fundraisers who know who know what's going on on the ground and, you know, and understand sort of the the cultural implications of even how we phrase things, you know, Mm. doesn't always translate well from one language to another. So so it's great. And it's so much fun to have colleagues all around the world. I'm actually bringing all of my um, philanthropy staff um, to the ranch in two weeks for our first team retreat in three years because of COVID. Fantastic. There's wow. a lot of staff I've never met face to face. You know, we've been in that Zoom space. So I'm really, really excited. And I want them to be inspired and excited by visiting the ranch as well. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So it sounds, I mean, this is probably a silly question, but it 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 sounds like you. I mean, your job sounds amazing because not only do you get to sort of touch all the elements of our work, but you get to meet so many different kinds of people all over the place. Absolutely, I think I have the best job at the HSUS. I <laughs> not 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 that your job isn't great, Carrie. <laughs> Pick a day and ask me that question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I even tell our CEO that Kitty, my job is better than yours. Um, but, <laughs> But no, what what I love, absolutely love about my job is just that, that 
not only do I get to work with all these external donors and get really energized by their excitement and their passion on issues, but I also get to work with all the different programs across the globe. You know, I know, mm-hmm. I know the folks who work on farm animals in Mexico and I know the folks who work on farm animals in India and, you know, I work with them to, you know, pull together big proposals. And so I get to sort of really interact and, you know, I, I, I basically feed off of their passion for the work. Oh, that of course. Doing. So, yeah. you know, I love that, you know, I like to work with the wildlife team. And so I'm never bored. Mm-hmm. I'm never kind of, you know, one, one subject all the time. And I like to be challenged and I get to learn about a lot of issues. I have a surprisingly in-depth knowledge of things that I would never think that I would know. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. The so- other day we were talking about, um, lead and ammunition and then it was with somebody and they were like how do you know this and I was like well because it impacts wildlife right you know, right exactly yeah. so yeah. you know there's you know you know and hunting issues and things like that so so it's really you know I, I get to learn a lot from a, a lot of different experts across the organization mm, that's fantastic so Kimberly, this is this is so great. I mean, if there's anything that our listeners are are curious about, if they want to reach out to your team or if they want to learn anything more about Humane Journeys, like what's the best place for them to do that? Yeah, if um you go to our website, humanesociety.org slash humane journeys, there is a landing page there where you can learn all about the three humane journeys. Um, and you know, the philanthropy team, you know, if you are interested in anything from donating a vehicle to donating goods and services. You know, mm-hmm. if you go online, there's a ways to give section of our website that will connect you to the various teams in my department. Um, you know, if you're interested in planned giving, you know, that's a portal will take you right to somebody to help you with that. So you can pretty much find out any of the information that you would need to connect with us um, on the website. That's great. And you guys work globally, right? So if they reach out to you, they can, and they're interested in funding some of HSI's work, you know, they can Absolutely. connect with Absolutely, yeah, yeah. That's great. Okay. Kimberly, thank you so much for your time today. This has been really delightful. Um, I, I am so excited to hear about how the humane journeys go. Hopefully we'll get to see some photographs and and uh, I can't wait to see what an elephant collar looks like. I'm like, I know, like, how big tag? Like, to go around an elephant. Or like... Yeah. <laughs> well, so they can track them, right? They, yeah. want, they want to track movement. They're, you know, they're looking to see if PZP impacts behavior in any way, of you know, the, the, all yeah. of that kind of stuff. So it's kind of fun, exciting data that we'll get out of it. Yeah, really exciting to see. All right. Uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. Um, this has been uh, Kimberly Din, our SVP of philanthropy here at the Humane Society. Uh, we appreciate your time. And as always, check out our work on humanesociety.org. We'll see you next time on Humane Voices. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.